So have you ever noticed how quickly your mood, your attitude changes when difficulties arise, when, when things get hard? Uh, what do you tend to do? Uh, some people tend to blame others. It's his fault. It's their fault. Uh, some people would blame themselves and they just throw a pity party. It's all my fault. Woe is me. Uh, things are hard. Let's, let's have a pity party. Uh, some people are the opposite. They resolve, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to get through this on my own white knuckle power. Other people just get angry. Uh, you know, I'm just upset at the world because life is hard right now. And other people uh, question God. They put him on trial. God, if you're so good and if you love me so much, why this? And this is especially tempting if you are living your life uh, as a follower of Christ and you're trying to be faithful to what he's called you to. And you think, well, God's called me to this. If God's behind this, it should be, we, we implicitly assume often, it should be relatively easy uh, because this is what God wants. And, and God's all powerful. God's all good. He should make level pads for my feet. He should make it easy treading, easy going. And I could see how Nehemiah, especially so far in our story, Nehemiah was brokenhearted over his people's plight, that the, city, uh, the city's walls were broken down, that the people were in great despair. Uh, and he prayed to God and God answered that prayer. God gave him much, much support. He gave him the support of the king who supplied all their needs to go about with this rebuilding project. He gave them the support of the people. So when Nehemiah came and he talked to the people, uh, they, he, he told them the story of how God had moved his heart and the people said, yes, we will rebuild this wall. We're in. And then last week, we saw that the people started to do this. They were laboring side by side together. And, uh, you know, it seems like everything is going great. But this week, we're going to see that as God's people worked together to restore brokenness, opposition came. And I think we're going to see two responses to opposition that we need to take away uh, because opposition is going to come in our own lives as we pursue faithfulness to Jesus as well. So the, the first response that we need to see and get from this story is we need to know the nature of the opposition. And so in chapter four, which I'd encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter four, um, because I'm not going to be able to read this whole chapter. We're, we're going to spend more time unpacking it than reading it today. So uh, in chapter four, verse one, you see Sanballat, who we've heard his name before as an enemy of the Jews. Uh, he was angry. He was really angry when they learned, when he learned that the Jews were rebuilding the wall. And so he mocked them. And in front of a bunch of his friends, which included Sumerian army officials, uh, he said, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something out of this trash heap, these stones from a rubbish heap, is what he says. And Tobiah, another enemy who've, who, who's voiced opposition already in the story, he, he, he also chimed in with the mockery and said, that stone wall that they're building, if even a fox jumped on it, if even a fox was walking across the top, it'll fall down. So, so they're just mocking the Jews and mocking the work. And then at this point, Nehemiah prays, and it's an imprecatory prayer, uh, meaning it's, God, go get them. Go sick our enemies and strike them down. Would you give them what they deserve? 
And then in verse 6, we see that through all this, the people kept working because Nehemiah says, at last the wall was halfway up. It was completed to half of its height and the people had worked with enthusiasm. They'd put their mind to the work. In the midst of this opposition, they strengthened their resolve and they kept going. But that's not the end of the story. The enemies saw this strength and resolved. And in verse 7, Sanballat and Tobiah, and then a bunch of the other surrounding nations, they heard that the work was going ahead and the gaps in the wall were being repaired and they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem. So here we see the threat was increased from mockery to now we're going to come wage war against them. And uh, the people responded by praying again, praying to God and doing something. They prayed and they prepared. They posted a guard day and night to protect themselves. But look at verse 10. The people of Judah began to complain. The workers, this is the Jews, the workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able, we'll never be able to build the wall by ourselves. And meanwhile, the Jews continued, our enemies are saying before they know what's happening, we're going to swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. So all this opposition, at first they resisted, they were praying. You know, it seems like they're doing the right thing. They're, they're praying, they're preparing, they're working hard, but it, it's grinding. It's just grinding them away. And they're losing heart. They're losing resolve. Their resources are beginning to be exhausted. And, and verse 12 is especially interesting. If you read it in the NASB version, which is more literal, it says the Jews who lived near the enemy, they came and told us 10 times. That, so 10 times they said, they're going to come from all directions and attack us. They're going to come from all directions and attack us. They're going to come from all directions and attack us. That was just three times. Imagine hearing that 10 times. Okay? They're going to come from all directions and attack us. Okay? They were paranoid at this point. They were, the, the enemy was absolutely under their skin. He'd gotten into their thinking and he was... He was puffing up their fear and diminishing their courage. They were out of their own resources. This is exactly where the enemy wanted them. And the, the kind of stepping away from our story, I, I think this is exactly where the enemy today still wants us. You see, the nature of the opposition for them, it sounds a whole lot different when we just read this story. It sounds a whole lot different than the opposition that we face. It's like, well, I'm not working on a wall. This is what we think not working on a wall and I don't have people mocking me and mocking my work. I don't have people threatening to wage war against me and my church or my family or my community. But the enemy, the devil and his demons, this is where he wants to get us to. This place of discouragement, this place of paranoia, this place of fatigue, and frankly, it's a place of hopelessness. And, and behind Tobiah, behind Sanballat, behind every opposition to God is the devil. And we see this throughout, throughout the New Testament. God makes it clear. But I just want to focus you on uh, Ephesians 6 where Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the devil's schemes against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the enemy that was attacking God's people then is still attacking God's people now. And he's still using 
very much the same tactics, empty threats, empty promises. And I say empty threats because they, they very much felt real, but nowhere in Nehemiah do the enemies actually come and start waging war. It's always threat, threat, threat. But nowhere do they actually pull their bow or wield their sword. And in 1 Timothy 4.1, uh, Paul says to Timothy that the Spirit says in later times some are going to depart from, their fa- from the faith and devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So when we think about the demonic, when we think about spiritual warfare, uh, we tend to get caught up in the miraculous. And I've heard stories, I, I know friends who have had what we would consider miraculous experiences of casting out demons and seeing demons visibly. But uh, the devil normally doesn't work like that. He normally works uh, much more subtly, much more discreetly, covertly. And, and as we talk about spiritual warfare, I think it, I want to remind you, I know it was a new song, but I want to pull out a lyric from that song we just sang. It says, our call to war is this, to love the captive soul, to rage against the captor. So I, I want you to see Sanballat and Tobiah or the people who are opposing God, the people who are opposing God's purposes in your life, they're not the enemy. They're the captive soul. We're called to rage against the captor, the one who is deceiving them. Paul says, though we live in this world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they're spiritual weapons They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Spiritual warfare, as the Bible describes it, is is warfare for the heart and for the mind. So what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's true about those thoughts? Here's some examples to kind of get it back down to the ground ground level, practical examples. A few weeks ago, a friend uh, told me, I think I'm being attacked by a demon. So if someone came to you and said that, well, what would you say? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I just said, well, what's the demon saying to you? And he said, the demon's telling me to cut myself. Like, you know, cut myself on the wrist. I said, yeah, that's a demon. I have no, I've, I mean, th- it just makes sense. That's what a demon, that's what the devil would want people to do, to destroy themselves, to hurt themselves. And so we prayed and, uh, you know, I think God gave him victory to resist the demon. And then another time I was the one under attack and I didn't know it. So a friend asked me, hey, Ben, do you think you're being attacked? And this, this just goes to show why we need each other, because my answer was, uh, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know if I'm being attacked. And then a couple days later, I thought about that question some more and it was like, well, yeah, of course I'm being attacked because my mind is struggling to discern what's true and what's false in this situation. And that's how you know you're being attacked. Satan is the father of lies. That's what he does. He tells lies. He offers up, just like Nehemiah's enemies, just like God's, the people of God's enemies, offered up empty threats. And the devil is still whispering empty threats or empty promises to us. So they're going to sound like things like this. Do you really think that God's going to come through for you? I mean, remember when you sinned in this and this way? 
Do you really think God's going to come through? Do, do you deserve that? The enemy is going to undermine your confidence in God. Or the enemy is going to say, nobody wants to hear about your junk. Nobody wants to hear about your issues. They're probably just going to talk behind your back later. Or the enemy will say, God helps those who help themselves. You need to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The enemy's voice sounds like this. Haven't you already tried reading your Bible? You didn't get anything out of it. Why would you try again? Or you don't know enough about your Bible to bring anything to the table, so you should just keep your mouth shut. Or the enemy could sound like this. You know more than everyone else in this room about the Bible, so you're a more mature Christian. That's a lie. Or the enemy could tell you just a vague, general feeling like you're an idiot. You're a failure. You're worthless. That's the enemy. Jesus said Satan is a liar and he's the father of lies. So when we encounter lies, we need to recognize the nature of this opposition. It is spiritual in nature and their lies straight from the pit of hell. And the way that we overcome them is through truths. We don't just ignore the lies, we have to replace them with truths. So when he says, in a vague general sense, you're an idiot, you're a failure, you're worthless, you say, no, my value is set by Jesus. And I'm loved by the Father with the love he has for his son. And when he says, you know, you know everything about the Bible, you should feel really good about yourself, you should check yourself because the devil knows everything. The devil could teach PhD level seminars about the Bible. But there is nothing Christian, nothing mature about him. He does not obey. He does not worship. He does not submit to the word. And then if he's telling you that you don't have enough to bring to the table to open your mouth in small group or even to show up, you could say, well, I know Jesus. And so I know who it takes to be profoundly helpful to other people. I might not know a lot, but I do know Jesus. Every single lie, there's a truth that counters it. And we need to find the truth. We need to meditate on the truth in order to overcome this type of opposition. So let's go back to our story and see how, how the truth came forth in the midst of this chaos that the, opposition was, uh, that the opposition created in the hearts, in the minds of the people. At the, so remember, at this point, the people are vulnerable. They're exhausted. They're, they're actually grieving their own funerals. They're going to come and attack us from every side. They're paranoid. So let's pick up the text of verses uh, 13 and 14. Nehemiah says, So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families, armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So this gives us what I see as our second response to opposition. We need to know what we're facing. We need to know the nature of it. But then here's the way out of it. You always find your way out of it by following your leader. And this is where I see this, this text is pointing us to Christ. Because Christ is the fulfillment of verse 15. And 
verse 15 says this, when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. Christ is the frustration of every plan of the devil. When Christ was crucified, he frustrated the plan of the devil to say, all these people, they're guilty. They're guilty, they're condemned. But he took that condemnation on himself. When Christ was raised to life, he frustrated the plan of the devil where at least the son of God was dead. No, he's alive. And now he can lead these redeemed people into newness of life. He can lead us into real ongoing change. We need the gospel to frustrate every opposition that comes to us. And as I was thinking, what I want, what I think God wants us to feel as a result of this text is to feel that Christ is worth it. He's worth the sacrifice that it takes to overcome opposition. He's, he's worth remembering we're all going to suffer. We're all going to suffer in some way. So what's our suffering going to count towards? Who are we going to suffer for? Adoniram Judson was a missionary who had, uh, he, he went through multiple marriages because his wives and his children kept dying on the mission field. And that caused incredible heartbreak for him. Uh, it even led him to a time of severe depression on the mission field. But but Judson said about his suffering, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. So I'm not saying that overcoming opposition is easy. I'm just saying it's possible in Christ to remember the gospel, to treasure Christ so supremely that even as you go through additional trials, even as your suffering accumulates more and more, you can feel certain that God loves you and that God has only allowed you to go through things in mercy. It's for your good. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And just like God's people in our story who looked to a leader for hope, we have to look to a leader for hope. And often, I mean, it's not, just, it's not just as simple as remembering the gospel and then we feel a wave of emotion, a wave of uh, emotion crashing over us, giving us hope. It's often that God leads us through his people. So here's another quick story. Two years ago, I got the keys to this building for the first time. And uh, I, my small group came and we, we moved a bunch of stuff in, uh, music equipment, and the guys were really excited and they were asking me, you know, all these questions. Hey, what are we going to do here, here? Hey, have you thought about this? And, and it, was, it was great. I mean, I'm glad they were excited. But inside, man, I was just so insecure. And I had no idea. I had no answers to any other questions. And uh, I, I, I drove there uh, to this group outing. We kind of carpooled in different cars. And I thought, oh, this, this would be a good opportunity for me to get time with a certain guy in group, uh, you know, I'd, I'd invest in him, encourage him in that time. Well, when we were walking out, I was just so beat up emotionally. Like, the, I was the devil's punching bag that night, just thinking, this church is bound to fail. Why would anyone come here? I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and I wasn't crying, but I mean, I might as well have been. I was being a big, big baby. 
So I got to the car and I'm trying to, you know, hold my broken self together. And this guy who I rode with, you know, he's there and I don't remember what he said, but he just said something like, you doing all right? And I was like, no, no, I'm not. But that night, that night I experienced Christ through my brother. And I remember this story often when I'm overwhelmed because all he did was he listened to me and he said some encouraging things. I don't even remember what he said, but I think he said something like, it's going to be fine. Trust God. We got your back. I just experienced Christ through my brother that night. And uh, it helped lead me out of a place where the devil had gotten under my skin. The devil had gotten into my thoughts and had this, this hold on my heart that was totally unnecessary, totally unfounded. And, and, and when my brother impacts me that way, it reminds me of what Bonhoeffer talked about in his book, Life Together. Check out the quote on the screen. He says, Christ became our brother in order to help us. And so through Christ, our brother has become Christ for us in the power and authority that the, of the commission that Christ has given him. So he's become Christ for us because Christ has so decided that we act on behalf of Christ for each other. So our brother stands before us as the sign of truth and grace of God. He, our brother or our sister, has been given to help us. And so often, if you're looking for help, if you're looking to overcome, uh, you know, just being the devil's punching bag, you got to involve other people. This is restoring brokenness together. And as I reflected on this story, I was reminded also, and I've said this before in our series, I'm going to say it again. Our vision has got to be greater than the wall. Meaning, our end goal, what we have in mind, it's got to be bigger than the task that's right in front of us. Because if our vision is just the wall, you know what's going to happen? When we don't think we can complete this task, when we don't think we can finish this, this thing that's in front of us, we're going to want to run. We're going to want to avoid it. We're going to want to quit, just like the people did. And, and in that story where I was the big baby, my vision wasn't greater than the wall. My, my vision wasn't greater than just getting the church up and running. That was my wall. I was working on that, and if I failed, I failed. Like, it was over. My vision was the wall, nothing greater. But Christ, if he calls you to do something, and he has, it's much bigger than a wall. It's much bigger than being a part of planting a church. It's much bigger than raising a child. It's much bigger than starting a business or excelling at your workplace. Jesus has a much bigger goal than just you doing that. He wants to change you. That's the bigger goal, to transform you. And that change, that, that restoration of brokenness in our own lives, it comes in the context of community. God chooses to restore brokenness together. And so our two responses is, is know the nature of the opposition and also follow the leader. And the rest of this chapter we see three practical examples of how they followed their leader. This is verses 15 to 23. I'll just kind of fly, fly over them. Uh, in verses 16 to 18, Nehemiah basically said, okay, you guys work on the wall and you guys are our military. You stand watch, okay? But even you guys who work on the wall, you need to have your sword on your side. 
Everybody had their individual responsibilities. They had to be individually prepared. And in so doing, they were following their leader. But Nehemiah recognized, okay, everybody being individually prepared, that's not enough because we're all spread out, like throughout the whole city working on different parts. And uh, we can we can each be ready, but we got to be ready together. And so trumpet player, you're with me. That's what Nehemiah said. And uh, and whenever you hear the trumpet sound, we all rally together and we fight for each other there. So there was this individual responsibility in the midst of this corporate unity, this corporate organization. And then in verses 21 through 23, you know, you have this great plan where everybody has their part that they play. And as a team, you know, here's what we're doing on a high level, but it's still not easy. Okay. Verses 21 to 23 show how great the cost is. Um, Which verse is it here? 23. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. You know what that means? They showered and did laundry at the same time. They didn't have time. I mean, the cost was great. They kept their clothes on all the time because they were always on guard. They didn't didn't have time to, you know, take off their clothes, apparently. So I just want to highlight the difference from the beginning of this story to the end was not circumstances changing. It was not that the opposition was eliminated. The opposition's coming back in the rest of Nehemiah. It wasn't that they tried harder. Even though they exerted a lot of effort, the difference was where they placed their hope. When they placed their hope in their leader, when they heard Nehemiah say, Remember the Lord our God who is great and glorious. That was the shift in this chapter. Hope is not a feeling. Hope is an attitude. It's a choice. And we see this throughout scripture, but especially Psalm 43. The psalmist talks to himself and says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God because I'm going to praise him again. He decided where his hope is. And so the difference from the beginning of the story to the end, it's not circumstances changing, it's where they put their hope. And so our application for us is to hope in God and not in circumstances. Here's another quote from that missionary earlier, uh, Adoniram Judson. He said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe the future is as bright as the promises of God? That doesn't mean that our nation will be around for another 250 years. That doesn't mean that you'll have a job next year. That means that you will not be disappointed when you put your hope in God. Our hope is a sure thing. So whatever connects your difficulty today with your desire for tomorrow Functionally speaking, that's your God. Whatever connects your difficulty today with your desire for tomorrow. And the one true God, he wants to be your experiential God. His word is full of invitations to go deeper with him through suffering, through hardship, through opposition. Here's one example. 
James writes, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete. You'll become a changed person, a different kind of person, not lacking anything. And when it says, consider it pure joy, that doesn't mean, oh, something bad happened to you this week. Congratulations. That doesn't mean that we're happy when hard times come. We rejoice that God is good. And we trust that God's working everything together for the good. And you might, I mean, you're allowed to ask these type of questions. Why the struggle, though? Why? And this is just one answer, but I think it's helpful for me. We only fight for what we value most. So why does God use struggle? Why does God use hardship? I think it's so that we are changed into people who value the right things the most. We only fight for what we value most. God is forming us into a people that he uses to restore brokenness. But as he uses us, he also forms us. He restores our brokenness. And ultimately... In the end, in the very, very end, Jesus comes and he will restore all things. And the Bible says that all those who long for his appearing will be rewarded. So I want to close this message by meditating on that verse that's on the screen, 2 Timothy 4. And as you pray, I I, I want you to picture receiving the reward. I I want you to long for his appearing And use that hope, use that hope to strengthen your resolve now that the cost is worth it. Going through opposition faithfully is worth it. Jesus, forgive us for relying on our own resources, putting our hope in circumstances and methods, even in other people. Help us to always redirect our hope in you. Thank you for being a sure hope. One that's not wishful thinking, but it's it's certain. Help us increase our resolve to live faithfully now, knowing what matters most in the end.